You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Welcome back to Deal Talk with 7MA. Today, I'm joined by Trip Davis, one of our partners here at 7 Mile, and Roan Reed, Senior Vice President at U.S. Trust. Trip will be leading today's discussion with Roan on the value of wealth planning. Without further delay, I'll kick it over and let him introduce himself and dive in with Roan. Thanks, Ariel. Trip Davis, one of the partners at 7 Mile. Uh, we're an investment bank predominantly focused on merger and acquisition, private capital raising, and strategic growth advice for businesses in a variety of industries. We work in the middle market and often find ourselves in a position where we're helping our clients best take advantage of the transaction opportunity that we're leading. Often that involves wealth planning and trusted advisors and friends like Roan Reed. Roan, take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Roan Reed, U.S. Trust. I've been there for about seven years now. I was with Sanford Bernstein for about six years. I've been in in the private banking space for well over a decade. And a substantial part of that time has been spent with families going through M&A transactions. Well, good. M&A is one of the few areas now where new money is is unlocked. It, it seems like most of the old money families have been identified. Folks in your business are very good at knowing who they are and how to approach them. But new wealth being created seems to follow either business transactions or real estate deals. Where else do you see you know, large pockets of wealth being created. Well, I think in today's environment, today's economy, those are the two predominant areas. It would be with entrepreneurs that are growing significant enterprises and businesses and then in the real estate environment. And a lot of our clients never exit those businesses. They might exit one temporarily, but we find that they oftentimes will reinvest in some type of an entrepreneurial investment or get back into real estate, whatever that that primary source of wealth was, we see a lot of times they'll go back into that in some degree. And we're just trying to help them understand that they've changed their form of wealth, not from illiquid to liquid, but from an asset that was not spendable, that they had all this governance and all this structure as a family business. Now it's into a new form that's more liquid, that has more opportunity for capital allocation and helping them think through that transition and what it means for them, for the businesses and for their families. No, that's a good point. I know I know in our case we often come across entrepreneurs, owners, and operators, you know, who for the last five, ten, twenty or more years have been, you know, paid well. You know, let's just say they're making a half million dollars a year or more. But the reality is, is the liquidity associated with that business is an untapped asset. The owner may in truth be worth ten, fifty, a hundred million based on the equity holdings within this company. How do you help them and their family and their estate understand the dramatic shift that may take place post-transaction and ultimately how to help them navigate that path? Well, honestly, what we try to do is help them look at it as there's not much of a shift from the standpoint of going from an illiquid to a liquid form that they they need to still have the same structure in place. So we try to make it simple for them to understand that transition because what I find if we make it too complex or too different, oftentimes business owners, especially of multi-generational family-owned businesses, that is a really hard transition for a lot of them to make because they've been in that business since they were children. 
you know, maybe their grandfathers or great grandfathers and grandparents built the business, so they've been in it for a long time. So oftentimes these transitions aren't just transitions that are transactional business transactions. These are family, you know, transactions. And what we try to focus on help them understand this transition is really more expressed as a as a transition of capital formation. It's going from this liquid privately held business asset into something that's different. As you know, it depends on the deal structure. It's usually mm-hmm. some combination of cash and maybe a rollover into some private equity. So now they're owners of multiple companies in a private equity form. So it's not publicly traded, but it's still in, in some form of a fund through private equity. They have a lot of cash that's been taken out. And depending upon the size, especially in the, on the larger end, we try to help them understand you're the size of a mid-sized company. Your family now has liquid value that is the size of a mid-sized company. How do you put that same structure you had when you had this family enterprise, how do you now apply that to your family? As you can imagine, that can get a little messy when you start not mixing in the family side of that, not just with the taxes, but it's really the, the value part, how we're shifting from the structure of a business now to the business of family. Well, I know we just dealt with that scenario in Florida with a multi-generational business that mm-hmm. we sold and and you've become involved with the you know, primary family behind that business. Were there any key pieces to that puzzle that you know, were difficult for the family to think about you know, in advance of that transaction? What I love about our role when we engage with families is no two families are the same. And I would say the one, I think I know the one you're referring to down in Florida, they were more advanced than most families. They'd already been through pretty substantial wealth planning in their past and had seen some of the challenges that are associated with planning around, uh, and, you know, for example, in their case, I think there's a grandfather that had set aside some real estate assets that had now been partitioned out across several different groups. And within each one of those groups had different descendants and there's different voting rights and non-voting rights and how that impacts the family. And so they've seen the pros and cons associated with different estate planning or wealth planning strategies. So in that instance, that was a that was really a more advanced family in terms of knowledge about what impact of some decisions could make 5, 10, 20, 30 plus years down the road. So that was honestly a, a really easy one to help communicate with, to work through the values. The challenge there, I think, was looking now at, you know, you made a lot of investments into, say, insurance for buy-sell agreements. So that if you have a partner that parted, for those not familiar, you have a buy-sell agreement, which sets the conditions of a partnership were to either be deceased or leave or whatever the conditions might be. Oftentimes that's funded with life insurance to provide the liquidity mm-hmm. to buy out the other partners so you cross cover the partners and that's one of the areas we see post-transaction we spend some time on introducing the business owners to insurance agents we know that can potentially convert those policies not always can it be done depends on the policy type that was used you know, term policy versus some other type so it can be challenging but that's an example of a long-term investment into an insurance policy that now no longer has its purpose post liquidity event. Sure, sure. And that was a good example where, you know, where seller got, you know, most of the liquidity at close and there was some, you know, some private rollover and some mm-hmm. earnout involved. That's not always the case with our clients though, and some mm-hmm. of them need to look at other creative solutions. Yeah, I think as an example, that company that that we're looking at down in Texas, I believe you met with them a few weeks ago. They've been, you know, it's a multi-generational business. They've been contemplating a sale. They've been going through a growth mode. I have recently brought on some new management. And what went from a near-term transaction and an outright sale to a private equity group or some strategic buyer has now taken another path. 
Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I think I'm uh, I think we're on the same page with regards to the client. And with that one, I think they saw the value that you brought to them in terms of understanding if you went from X number of dollars in revenue to Y number of dollars in revenue, the turn on EBITDA goes from you know Y to Z. Therefore, it made sense for them to do some acquisitions and grow, and then look at a transaction 12 to 24 months in, in the future. And often the, the question that you get is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is how much is my company worth? Sure. And what do I need to do to maximize my value? Absolutely. And you know, our view on that is it's hard to know what to do if you don't know where you are, right? It's hard mm-hmm. to know where to go if you don't know where you are. And in order to know where to go, you have to know what the company's worth what your strategic alternatives are in the current environment, and then how to most efficiently grow value between today and some sort of a transactional event down the road. That's right. And one of the areas that we've really found an interesting partnership with you is helping those owners understand those options and the ultimate impact on their families and mm-hmm. you know and, and, and their family's family. Yeah, I think in these cases, the question you get is, how much is my company worth and how do I maximize value? The question I usually get is, can we afford to sell it? Mm-hmm. Can we afford to sell the goose that's laying the golden egg? And if we do, how do we do this without messing up our children? Mm-hmm. Those are usually the two questions I get. Where does that conversation usually start and with whom? <laughs> it can vary. And no two families, as you know, if you've gone through these transactions, are the same. I'm thinking of another family in Texas where pretty far down the road in the engagement on the transaction – and this was probably 2011, 12 timeframe. Mm-hmm. So far enough away from the Great Recession where it was, I'm going to say distant memory, but it was definitely in the past, but still close enough where you could still remember the impact. And you could sense in the meeting over the dining room table between the, the, the family, so the male spouse and, and the lady spouse, you could sense there was a, a little tension between their objectives or what they're hoping to accomplish. And I tried to dig into that a little bit, and it became pretty clear that She's trying to understand why are we selling the, this goose that's laying the golden eggs? Because we got a really nice home, we've got really nice second home, nice sports cars, good life. Why are we, why are we selling? And I asked the owner about just in casual conversation, how was it for in two thousand eight, two thousand nine? He immediately went into this description of accounts receivable going through the roof. They lost their three largest clients. A bunch of really negative items that were occurring in the business that apparently had not been shared prior. And he caught himself about 10 minutes into this uh, this dictation of things that occurred. And you could just see his wife's eyes getting really big. And then she turned back to me, how much did you say we could get for the business? <laughs> so, and so we see those things that occur sometimes. You got to make sure that everybody's on board. And I see this as you do with partners, you, with spouses, and you got to make sure everybody's aligned because this is not, these transactions are not simple tactical transactions. You're affecting families, especially if you have multi-generational ownership in a family. And I, you've heard me say this on other, um, in other venues, that I think the bigger, biggest underestimation that owners have going into this process, I think they're totally unprepared for the emotional impact of the process and the transaction itself. No matter how much they prepare themselves, I have never, ever met one owner say they were prepared for that. Mm, good point. Good point. It's also noteworthy that you, you know, we, we've, we've mostly referenced multi-generational businesses today, although many, if not most of our clients are first generation, mm-hmm. you know, entrepreneurs, founder owners of businesses that are, 
you know, have now reached critical mass and are at a point where they can find liquidity if they like. The difference between the newer entrepreneurs or founder owners versus the multi-generational ones is often they haven't thought about what the estate impact is going to be mm-hmm. of the wealth created by this private asset. Mm-hmm. What are some of the consequences to not planning appropriately prior to a transaction? So what we're finding is that more and more families are impacted by their view on wealth. So it's how do they grow up? That really imprints on them, on their views on wealth. And in fact, we got some really interesting conversations we're having with the family right now, which is first generation, substantial, substantial wealth that's being created in a company that's going to do some type of a liquidity event in the next 18 months to 24 months. And and the the two primaries that we're talking to here are very concerned about how this is going to impact their children. They're very uncomfortable with the amount of wealth they have, very uncomfortable that they're flying around in private planes, very uncomfortable that their children are discussing this with their maid service. And what we had to help them understand, and this is for everybody, when you have this kind of wealth, you're going to have an impact. The question is, do you want to direct that impact? And that comes back to the values. And so where we usually start is, and we've been working very closely with uh, with my friend who wrote a book called Entrusted, David mm-hmm. York. Probably wrote the best book I've seen on this whole subject around wealth planning. And it really comes down to values. Then how do those values tie back to impact? And so for me, I have four questions that David asks his clients that I'd like to go ahead and put on the podcast here today because I think they're really key four questions to think about. I think a lot of, a lot of families get really hung up in all this tax planning, estate planning, and, and every state planner and wealth planner has got a whole bunch of four-letter acronyms we can pull out. Grats, idgets, cruts, crats. We've got all kinds of stuff we can pull out. Those are all tools. Typically, when you're building a house, you don't pull out the tools until you've architected a plan, right? Until you've designed some type of house plans. The architect goes through it in great detail based upon the input from the owners and from the clients, right? You don't get to the tools until the construction team shows up and starts building out the plans. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of times in our industry, a lot of advisors will jump straight to the tools. This happened just last week. I couldn't attend a meeting, and the owner in this case was asking about grants, grant to retain annuity trust. It's a great concept, great great strategy, potentially, but then started asking questions. Are you familiar with the valuation issues that can occur pre-transaction, during the transaction, post-transaction, how you value for the grants? Those are great with liquid assets, more challenging with illiquid assets. We can do it, but you can have the valuation process in place. There's another strategy called intentionally defective grantor trust, which nobody typically likes to do things that are intentionally defective, but it's just the acronym for a a strategy that works really well for closely held assets. But all those things come back to the discount strategy around how to prepare for an estate plan. But that's not the important thing. The important thing I tie back to is what are the priorities? Why do you need to use those tools? Let's not talk about tools. Let's take it up a notch. What's the design of the plan? Does that make sense? Sure. And so the questions that I know David has asked his clients that I'll go ahead and put out today is, that that I think are great for everybody to think about. If you could transfer all of your financial wealth without any tax, or you can have grateful children, which would you pick? So far, I'm betting a thousand on that question. With people I've asked, it's, I'd like to have grateful children. If you could average 15% or better return on your investments, or had children who were self-reliant, self-sufficient, productive, and mature, what would you pick? So far, I'm betting a thousand on that one, too. Sure. Everybody I've had these questions with. They want their children to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. Number three, if you could completely protect your assets from creditors or had children who knew who they were and what they valued, what would you pick? 
bet in a thousand. Easy choice. The latter of the two. That's right. If you could ensure, the fourth question, if you could ensure that your assets were used exactly as you outlined or that your family was engaged, involved, and connected with each other over 50 years from now, which would you pick? Betting a thousand so far, it's a lot of the two. And so if you understand estate planning, what those questions, what they're really getting to, the first one is getting to the wealth transfer question. How much would you like to transfer to your children? The second one is getting to, would you rather have really good returns or self-sufficient, productive children? The third one, do you want to protect your assets from creditors, which usually that's what trusts are used for? Or do you want to be or do you want to focus on something else, on, on what they value, that they know themselves? And the fourth one, you can literally rule your estate from the grave in your estate plan, the way you construct it. And what that fourth question is getting to is, how important is that relative to setting the conditions for a family where you don't have to have all that structure? So what I find is families, a lot of times, especially the new generation, that's first-generation creation of wealth, they're trying to figure out how do I give my children these experiences that informed me, that made me who I am, that made me struggle, the sleepless nights, the worry, all those things that make life challenging, that made me who I am today so I could do what I'm doing now as an entrepreneur. Yet with wealth, those are all the same things that are removed as challenges, right? So how do you find that balance and how do you prepare that next generation? That's the challenge. And so we like to start there first. Let's talk about the values. If we understand the values, we understand the objectives. If we understand the objectives, we can now design a plan. Once you design the plan, everything falls into place. There's four places your money can go. You can spend it. You can leave it to your heirs or beneficiaries. You can give it to charity, or you can give it to the IRS. Basically, those are the four channels where your money can go. So now some priority on those four, which ones have higher priorities. And then within your value set, how do we make sure your impact that's important to you is aligned into those channels. Most of our clients prefer to minimize that fourth, the IRS receivable, and we work hard to get get that done. But we really want to focus on the bigger picture, on the strategy for the family, not just on tools to help mitigate the tax. So I know it's a long-winded response to a fairly simple question, but this is a complex issue, and it's not it's not an easy one to answer, and it's very nuanced. And it's a process you need to go through to help everybody align. And what we find is that if everybody else in the family understands the perspective they have on wealth, it it helps the process along. So you value one another's opinion, then you input that into a long-term plan. That's a higher strategic purpose, a vision, if you will, for the family. If you look at the Rothschilds today, arguably the wealthiest family in the world, they've thought through their vision, their model, what life means to them well beyond the generations that initially created the wealth. They've created a really a set of values that transcends one or two generations. And that's the challenge that we try to combat because most of the time you've heard the, the saying that in three generations, shirt sleeve to shirt sleeve, generation one creates the wealth, two does okay, starts to squander, usually a third generation squanders the wealth and they're back to where they started. And we're focused on trying to prevent that from happening. How often do you find families, business owners, or those involved with these businesses, yeah, that have had that conversation with their family prior to this discussion? Less than 10%. Yeah, it's an interesting question and one I haven't thought about prior to this moment. But, you know, folks that are so focused on designing and executing mm-hmm. on defined business plans, you know, take so little time to try and do so at home so often. It's interesting. 
What uh, what advice would you have for owners or their spouses? You know, when when thinking about that liquidity event or planning, therefore. Well, I think the first thing they should do is buy that book from David York, the Entrusted Book. I I've never seen a book frame the concept of wealth beyond just money in terms of knowledge and investment of time and family. I've never seen it so well defined with purposeful traits and really objectives that everybody can learn from. And I've sent it to a couple of clients now, several that are considering transactions. And I'm thinking of one in particular who told us that um, he said it was the best book he's ever read. Not just the best book he's read on the subject, the best book he's ever read. It was really impacting him and his wife. And they're going through this really significant um, challenge working through what wealth means to them. So I think Mm -hmm. the timing was right for us to catch them where they are in life relative to this book, which is why he said that. What is legacy more than money, right? Yeah. 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 That's the question. So one of the other things our clients run into often is, you know, when selecting good advisors, they often don't know where to start or what that team looks like. When it comes to the wealth planning side, what types of folks are involved in that conversation and how are they most beneficial? Yeah, I think first I would find somebody on the team. There's there's really a a stool of four in the transaction that I've done where it's been successful and worked together as an integrated team. The M&A advisor, the, the investment banking M&A advisor, what Seven Mile Advisor does, that is an integral part to the transaction. A good attorney, really good attorney. And this typically is not the local council that has been supporting the family for 20 years. It's typically somebody with a little bit different skill set that can quickly understand the, the transaction process and the terms between the strategic buyer, the financial buyer, and the owner, and can help translate that. And I find a lot of times families are trying to figure out if they should spend the additional money to get a specialized attorney in that space. And I find I'd rather have somebody who's an expert in that, especially if it's my lifetime work that's focused on that, can understand it, and can very quickly understand what this private equity company or what the strategic is trying to do in terms of the negotiating in specific reps or warrants. I'd rather have that person on the team is somebody learning, and I'm paying for them to learn on the job. I think it's invaluable to have the, the, the attorney on the team, a qualified tax person. And this is typically, once again, not likely the same tax person that's been preparing your books for 10 or 20 years, maybe doing some minor audit work. This is probably going to be a firm with more capability, more experience, specifically in M&A. I'll share one quick story. I had a client, this was a number of years ago, had a wonderful local firm. And I still think very highly of the local firm. But they're really focused on an operating entity that had not really experienced a multi-state transaction through an M&A transaction with a strategic. And they had six or seven different states they operated in, had offices in. And this was a, a small regional accounting firm they had historically used. And they had totally missed a major tax accounting issue and actually saved them a couple hundred thousand dollars. When we brought in another firm, one of the big four came in who's focused in M&A, looked at the multi-state issues that were involved, and saved hundreds of thousands of dollars for, a, I think, the engagement cost ten or $20,000 for that, for that accounting firm to come in and basically look look over the shoulder of his local firm. And both, both accountants were very thankful that the other was there. So it worked great. I think a lot of times business owners are worried they're going to upset this friend of theirs they go to church with or sit in synagogue with who's right down the road from them, they're going to upset them if they bring in 
somebody else from some major city or, or from wherever. And I think any advisor worth their salt wants the best for their client and will not be intimidated or feel badly about that at all, but actually be appreciative because they don't want to mess it up. So if there's an expert that can come in and do it, and I think Seven Mile is in a great position, obviously, because this is what you do for living every day, as you've had the chance to now work with lots of accounting firms, lots of legal firms, and you know who has what capability and what might be applicable. So I think the, bit, the most important thing is experience, direct specific experience in the M&A space, and the second is chemistry. Because if they're experts in this area and they can't get along with the client, it doesn't matter, right? So it's that combination, I think, that's super important. And then the fourth leg of the stool is what you know is what we do, is which is on the wealth planning side. And it's similar to the other two. You may have had a local broker, and when you're EBITDA is a million, two, three million dollars a year, and you got 401k plans and things coming out, maybe you only have half a million, million dollars plus of liquid investments, but now you're looking at something completely different. In the same way that there are firms that specialize locally for the day-to-day operations and legal and in tax work, it's the same thing with, with our segment advisory services. There are firms that just specialize in something different than what a local firm can provide, and we just help families through that process. Well, Ron, I'm out of questions today. I I, I think you've done a great job both capturing what it is you and your firm do and and as well as aligning that with what we and our our friends do, right, those that are in the fields of accounting or law or other areas. Any parting thoughts or questions for us? Yeah, I think Ariel wanted me to address also Opportunity Zones. That's been kind of a a hot topic lately. Mm Mm-hmm. And we've had several clients that have gone through transactions here in the last six months that have been looking at them. So I'll just share a couple of things that, that I've seen that have come up. One is, um, I think it's great opportunity, but a bad investment's a bad investment. And so just like a 1031 exchange, most of your clients have probably been through some type of a 1031 exchange through their commercial real estate or they've looked at it. And probably half of them had been able to execute a 1031 exchange because it made sense where the new property was. Mm-hmm. And the other half walked because they knew they couldn't find proper investment in that time frame. I'd say approach this in the same in a similar fashion. Part of the challenges that come with the opportunity zone is that you have to make what's called a substantial investment, which most in the industry understand that to mean you're doubling whatever your original investment was. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a reason why it's an opportunity zone. It's in an economically challenged part of the state, and that's why they're providing this opportunity. So you want to make sure that where you're going to make the investment, one, makes sense, just period. And two, provide some flexibility in how you can make that substantial investment. And we've had some clients that have looked at um, buying the underlying real estate and then to make their substantial investment rather than increasing the value of the real estate through some type of modification. They're actually putting an operating entity entity into that building to meet the requirements. Interesting you bring that up. I think most of the opportunity zone volume that we see is on the real estate side and much Mm -hmm. less so on the business side. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so so you can buy, let's say the right next door to us is a warehouse where we're doing mm-hmm. this podcast right now. And I, if we're not in an opportunity zone, we're pretty close to one right here, right now. So let's say that warehouse was in an opportunity zone. You went and you bought it for a million dollars. You'd have to put another million dollars into the warehouse to meet the requirements for the, for the tax benefits. Or you could move your operating entity into that warehouse. Let's say you had a I don't know, distribution business of some type. You could move the operating entity of that distribution business into that warehouse, now you have a flexible asset that you haven't dumped capital into it and doubled down on your risky investment in an opportunity zone 
you've met the requirement with a somewhat flexible asset that in three, five, seven years from now, you need to move out because the real estate here is not accreting in value. Mm-hmm. It's actually decreasing in value because continued impoverishment or some of the challenges that are in the area, blighted area, it gives you flexibility on your capital. So that's one example where I've seen some of our our clients have been really clever in how they're managing the risk there. Then the other part is just not letting the tax tail wag the dog. Yeah, I think it's a nice additional benefit. The the increase in the basis to offset the cap gains. Talk a little bit more about that because you've done a good job describing what an opportunity zone may be and what investment opportunities within those zones are. But why would a business owner consider well, it's a, it's a way to basically defer your capital gains and potentially reduce your capital gains. So I'll just read a paragraph to make sure everybody understands what it is. Investment and opportunity funds for at least five years get a 10% increase in tax basis of the original gain. In other words, if I walked into that warehouse next door and I had a $1 basis, better yet, let's just say it's a $100,000 basis, I pick up another 10% on that $100,000 basis. So I pay less on that on that capital gain, right? If the investment... Investments for at least seven years get a 15% increase in the tax basis of the original gain. Investments held for at least 10 years are exempt from any additional gains beyond that which was previously deferred. So in other words, you you bought this warehouse next to us, you made your investment, you put your distribution center in there, it's now 10 years into the future, and because the real estate around this area has just gone through the roof, that is now worth $3 million. So that $2 million of additional gain, you wouldn't have to pay any cap gains on so this would be an outlet for some of the liquidity brought from a sell-side transaction or a capital raise. Is that what you're saying? Well, specifically, the, the capital gain tax bill that a business owner who's just sold their business can take that capital gain tax bill, mm-hmm. the portion they've allocated for next April, September, whatever it might be, that portion can now be dropped into a fund. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we've seen some clients do that I think is really smart is they're doing it in partnership with uh, commercial real estate funds and companies. So you have commercial real estate experts working on your behalf because you have to do it in a fund format. And the other interesting thing that's come up recently that I didn't realize is that it's it's 180 days from the tax date and most assume that it's the transaction date. However, if it's a K-1 event for you, so it hits your K-1, mm-hmm. it's actually 180 days from 1231 of the prior tax year. So you really have until June, into June over the following year if it was a, a K-1 event for you. Good news? Yeah. So it can extend out even further, which helps give you some time because most families are really busy going through the transaction process, don't have time to go look for real estate. And sure. Just give them a little additional time to go identify some. Great insight, Ron, uh, both to our team as well as those listening. Thanks for the time today. It's, uh, it's you know, I think we've worked together going on almost 10 years now from time to time and have you know, shared some clients and some opportunities, both in business and in personal life. Uh, we appreciate you taking the time with us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot com.
7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 